If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favourite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. Farming came out of the First World War with a very bad reputation. Farmers were thought to have had too good a war. That was Claire Griffiths talking about farming and the Second World War. So it's what the general editor, uh, Michael Suarez, says is the Hubble telescope of the arts. And that was John Morrill on a fascinating new historical resource. Welcome to the History Extra podcast with me, Rob Attar. This podcast is brought to you by the team behind BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good news agents and on subscription. Plus, we have a Kindle edition available on the Amazon website and an iPad edition on the Apple newsstand. You can find out more details of all of this and great subscription offers on our website, which is historyextra.com. And if you have any comments about the podcast or any of our other products, you can get in touch with us through email, podcast at historyextra.com, on Twitter, hashtag historyextra, or on Facebook, forward slash historyextra. Following the screening of the recent BBC Two series, Wartime Farm, our section editor, Charlotte Hodgman, spoke to Claire Griffiths of the University of Sheffield about how farmers felt about their role on the home front and what they wanted from the 1945 general election. So what were the main challenges faced by farmers in the Second World War? 
the major problem that farming faced going into the Second World War was really a legacy of the First World War and the subsequent years of depression that agriculture had been suffering in Britain. And really, there were problems of lack of investment, problems of lack of confidence. A lot of farmers really didn't feel they had the confidence to plan their production, that they were going to get fair prices for the inputs they uh, were placing in their, uh, into their industry. And so there was a, a real problem about ensuring that farming was as productive, as efficient as it, as it should be. And some of the practical implications of this were that a lot of land was simply left fallow during the late 1930s. You've got this big problem which affected particularly some of the traditional arable areas, especially in East Anglia, where it just wasn't economically viable for farmers to be ploughing the land and putting it down to crops. It was better for them simply to put it, leave it to rough grazing. And, um, and so this became a bit of a a national scandal, really, and um, it wasn't the case that all of agriculture was suffering this depression. Some areas, particularly horticulture, some parts of fruit farming, small-scale livestock production, dairying indeed, some of these areas were actually quite buoyant during the war, but a lot of the publicity went to what was going on in wheat farming in particular, and that was taken as a kind of talisman, really, for uh, the fate the fate of the industry as a whole. So one of the big challenges going into the war was to turn this around to try and bring land back into active cultivation, try to restore confidence um, and simply get agriculture rising to the challenge of, of making good the loss in food imports uh, which the war uh, obviously entailed. And just how serious were food shortages at this time? Well, Potentially, they were extremely serious because by this point, um, Britain was very heavily reliant on food imports. And in some areas uh, of the national diet, that was more significant than others. So, of course, any interruption such as war tends to bring uh, in imports was likely to have a very serious uh, effect. The, the way in which the government approached that was really to put all its emphasis on uh, on arable production and really to scale back a lot of the investment in, in livestock farming in, in Britain. So that's the first thing that farmers were encouraged to do, to move away from livestock, much of course, uh, which was, was being fed on grain. So it was, was a further drain on the national grain supply. So to move away from livestock production and to put everything into, um, into arable, particularly cereal production as a kind of core producing the national loaf, the core of the national diet. Okay, and what, what were the differences in the sort of treatment of the farming community between the, the two world wars? Well, it's very interesting because in the First World War, the government was relatively slow to intervene. Going into World War One, Britain was still very heavily a food-importing nation. It was very dependent on on importing food partly from around the empire, but also outside uh, the empire. And already at that stage, it was uneconomic to produce wheat in many parts of Britain, simply because the price of grain imported from Canada, from Russia, from the US was so low that really um, it didn't pay British farmers to be uh, producing those kind of crops. So there was still a problem potentially facing Britain about interruption in food supplies, but that didn't really make itself evident till about 1916 when you begin to get attacks on the, on the shipping from uh, U-boats. And, um, and so it's at that point that uh, the government really had to 
take this seriously and look at uh, making Britain much more self-sufficient in food. So that really takes effect from 1917. In 1917, there's legislation, the Corn Production Act, um, which specifically um, gave guarantees to farmers uh, of the prices they would get uh, by growing grain. And it began to prompt a shift uh, in farming practice at, at that point. So in the First World War, there's relatively late response. It's only, again, 1917 that you begin to get women being drafted onto the land in a, a, an early version of the, the Women's Land Army during the First World War. So all those kind of efforts to really put agriculture on a wartime footing come at a relatively late stage uh, in the conflict. During the Second World War, uh, the position was very different. Um, in the years just leading up to the war, the government was already planning, um, so they did have the apparatus in place. In particular, it had the whole apparatus of the agriculture executive committees uh, in place, ready to go as soon as uh, war was declared. So, um, apparatus which would control farming, would direct how, how farmers were to, uh, to farm their land, what they were to grow, and putting controls in place for if they failed to meet those production targets, what would the consequences be? There were also um, plans already in place which were about um, how land would be uh, maintained in, in fertility and, uh, and there'd been investment going in with grants to improve drainage of land, basically to bring the land into a better condition uh, going into um, the outbreak of war. So everything was really ready to go as soon as uh, war was declared. Um, and then you have a programme put in place which escalated over the course of the war uh, to manage this transition from um, mixed farming in Britain to much greater emphasis on arable production moving away from uh, traditional interest in livestock. And was the nation grateful to these farmers who fed them during the Second World War? Well, the question of whether the nation was grateful or not is an interesting one. It's very much a, a dominant theme of... Uh, the propaganda surrounding the war effort and of the ways in which uh, public perception of the post-war settlement for agriculture has been framed. So there's an idea that somehow the way in which farming gains the greater status in Britain as a result of the experience of the Second World War and farmers were given more favourable conditions, particularly through the 1947 legislation on the agriculture act guaranteeing prices, giving farmers even a say in how official policy was um, worked out. So all of that seemed to suggest that there was some kind of cause and effect, that basically farming status rose directly as a result of what farmers had done during the war. And it was something that the farmers' organisations themselves were very keen to promote. There's a legacy again from the First World War here because Farming came out of the First World War with a very bad reputation. Farmers were thought to have had too good a war. They had been profiteering. There were a lot of cartoons satirising farmers in their fur coats and driving their new cars and enjoying this initial prosperity that came out of um, the subsidies they'd enjoyed and the guaranteed prices for their grain production. So there's a very bad taste left in the public, for the public about um, how farmers could really have a very good war. And throughout the Second World War, farmers' organisations, the farming press, are really concerned that nothing must be done to potentially add to this accusation of profiteering. So they're, they're treading this very awkward path, really, between wanting to have their due, wanting to make sure that they're compensated for all the really very significant changes they were having to make to their farming practice and, and the risks they were having to take um, by 
doing this and, and by investing in, uh, in new forms of, of production, new machinery, uh, and, and so on. So they were, they were keen to get their due for that and to have some sort of compensation, but at the same time, very concerned that they shouldn't push this too far, that they must maintain public goodwill. So out of all that, one might think, well, yes, the farmers come out with having quite a good uh, public relations experience of the Second World War. But on the other hand, if you think about what food meant to people during the Second World War and what their ideas were about how it was produced and how it was consumed, then perhaps the picture isn't quite so straightforward. Obviously, a lot of government publicity was actually poured into the Dig for Victory campaign, which was all about ordinary people up and down the country, men, women and children, um, growing food, often in very urban surroundings, making use of their gardens, turning them over to vegetables, taking advantage of new wartime allotments, maybe even going and helping on the land in formal agricultural settings by volunteering for harvest camps, giving up their holidays to help bring the harvest in and so on. So it's actually quite a lot of emphasis in government propaganda on people sort of helping themselves to build up the, uh, the country's food stocks and to vary their own diet. And of course, the overall picture of, of what food was being made available to the public um, leaves people uh, really very bitter. Rationing is one of the things that people really complain about during the war. And of course, it didn't finish with the end of the war. It lingers on into the early 1950s. Indeed, the position actually got worse immediately after the Second World War with additional foodstuffs being brought onto um, the rationing system. So. In some ways, people didn't feel necessarily that satisfied about how food had been managed during the war. Um, so the question of whether they were particularly grateful for the uh, farmers for what they'd contributed was not perhaps as straightforward as we might imagine. It sounds like the Ministry of Agriculture had quite a lot of say in what was happening on farms during the war. What were relationships like between the Ministry and farmers by the end of the war? Farmers traditionally very suspicious about anyone from outside interfering in what they do on their farms. So, of course, you bring in new forms of bureaucracy, uh, you have people coming onto the farm to inspect the standard of cultivation, to grade what farmers was doing, A, A, B or C, how effectively were you managing your farm, were you getting the best out of it? And officials who were questioning what your choices over what you should be growing in which field uh, and the methods by which you wanted to do this. So there's a lot of interference and that resulted in quite a lot of resentment uh, in farm, farms around the country. It's a lot of bureaucracy associated with war, a lot of form filling um, and all that m makes for a very difficult relationship between farmers and the Ministry of Agriculture and of course their representatives on the ground, the members of the war ags who were the kind of the visible face of the Ministry of Agriculture throughout the Second World War. So there's that awkward relationship but then of course there's quite a lot for the farmers to be grateful to the Ministry of Agriculture for uh, during the war. Uh, the Ministry was responsible not only for those elements of control but also for helping farmers to improve their practice, making machinery available to them through machinery pools. That's the way that a lot of farmers have their first access to tractors and, and, and other forms of machinery they wouldn't have been able to afford at that stage um, out of their own 
finances. So a lot of opportunities for education, for um, some scientific education to improve the way in which you use fertilisers uh, in your farming, for example. So there are lots of supportive aspects of, of the ministry. And, of course, ultimately, through the experience of the war, farmers got what they'd been asking for uh, as an organised group for a long time, which was um, guaranteed markets, guaranteed uh, prices for what they were producing. So in all sorts of ways, that's all very positive. And within the Ministry of Agriculture, at various points during the war, you have some key figures whom farmers genuinely respected. R.S. Hudson was himself a farmer and he's Minister of Agriculture for a period during the war. You've also got a key figure who becomes very important for the post-war period too, Tom Williams, Labour MP, who had a significant role within the wartime government, uh, particularly overseeing the Dig for Victory campaign. And Williams was a really interesting figure because he comes from a mining background and he was a Yorkshire MP. But during the 1930s, within Labour, he'd been very involved in developing agricultural policy and really made it an area of special expertise. He was very popular with farmers and he went on to be Labour's post-war Minister of Agriculture um, and really one of the few Ministers of Agriculture about whom farmers didn't seem to have a bad word. He was a, just a very popular figure. So I think there are aspects in which the Minister of Agriculture seemed to be the farmer's friend during the war period and going into the post-war period. But a lot of aspects of that bureaucracy and control and interference, which really got farmers' backs up. And how did the war affect political allegiances among the farming community, in particular the 1945 general election? Farmers as a group, traditionally seen as classic conservative voters, really. And the question of how far the wartime experience affected that is a moot one. There's some suggestion by the end of the 1930s that actually the farmers were fairly fed up with the Conservative Party in government um, and really didn't feel that the Conservative Party was, was meeting uh, the needs of agriculture that they'd taken farmers rather for granted. They were doing nothing to express a commitment to expand domestic production of food at that point. So some farmers already in the late 1930s were beginning to register uh, protest votes for Labour and indeed for some other parties. There'd even been some attempts to form specifically agricultural parties again in this character of a protest vote. So there's some suggestion already that farmers were a bit annoyed with their traditional um, political uh, allies and, and wanted to teach them a bit of a lesson. But I think there's room also to see the experience of the Second World War and to see what was, going, what was happening at the time of the 1945 general election um, as an opportunity really for Labour to take much more advantage of a positive um, opportunity for support uh, from the agricultural community. The Labour Party placed quite a lot of emphasis on developing agriculture as a really key part of its programme and that was um, an aspect of its, its longer term commitment to try and build support in rural areas. Labour had a reputation as a very urban party which of course farmers had often held against it during the, the interwar period, this idea that somehow Labour came out of the towns and industry so it couldn't understand the countryside. 
But Labour strategists thought that really they couldn't function as a, a major political force and they could never win an overwhelming majority in the House of Commons unless they won rural seats. And that agricultural support was an important element in that. So th they developed a very well thought out agricultural uh, policy. And it so happens that actually a lot of the things they've been asking for about greater governmental um, support for agriculture in terms of guaranteeing prices and markets, supporting farmers through technical assistance, um, uh, and really encouraging the industry to modernise and develop. A lot of that, of course, is promoted during the Second World War um, itself, so that by 45, the Labour Party really seemed to have a policy which was pretty much state-of-the-art in terms of what agriculture needed, and, and farmers were quite receptive to that. One doesn't want to overstate this. I mean, to a degree, all political parties were offering uh, a fairly good deal for agriculture by 1945. In fact, Farmers Weekly at one point looks across the uh, political programmes trying to offer its readership advice on how they should uh, best place their vote and commented that all the policies were pretty much peas in a pod and there wasn't much to choose between them. Um, but it, it does seem that uh, farmers recognised that uh, actually what Labour was promising, it had been promising for several years before the war as well. There was a serious commitment and, and the idea that maybe they might follow through on this uh, rather more than the Conservatives would. Of course, it's also the consideration of whether farmers really were voting on specifically agricultural issues at all or, or whether they're actually caught up much more in a sort of national uh, response to that general election, questions about conservative confidence, questions about um, how foreign policy had been operating in the 1930s. So a lot of the issues which are, are bound up with that whole election of what the post-war reconstruction should uh, should be about and, and who was best fitted to deliver it, uh, farmers are obviously in engaged in that debate as, as well and wouldn't necessarily want to simply limit them to, to voting narrowly on, on uh, selfish issues. So what changes did the election create for farmers? Well... When the Labour government came in, it was uh, very heavily committed to this idea of um, promoting the modernisation uh, and stabilisation of uh, the industry. And it does that through a series of pieces of, of legislation. Um, they begin really in 1946, where there's legislation which um, was um, supporting hill farming, which was a very marginal um, activity, really, even at that point. And, and so trying to make sure that it was, it was possible to uh, maintain uh, farmers on the uplands um, for um, the post-war period. So giving subsidies to the industry and, and encouraging that. But the really big piece of legislation was 1947, the Agriculture Act, which really set the tone for uh, post-war policy for a very long period. And I suppose that's best remembered today for being seen as the beginning of the whole uh, development of uh, a heavily subsidised, supported agricultural sector, which was devoted to high productivity, in some ways, whatever the cost. So it's, it's had a rather mixed reputation um, over the years. But essentially, what that aspect of the legislation meant uh, was that farmers had guaranteed prices, their own organisations were involved annually in the price review, which fixed these, and that was all wrapped up with a package of uh, subsidies for different aspects of the industry. Um, so all that, all that goes into the post-war period to really encourage farming to be a more thriving industry, something which was economically viable and could make a real commitment to the national economy more broadly. 
But, of course, there are a lot of other aspects of the 1947 legislation. Um, the controls which had been used during the war to promote the standard of cultivation um, and uh, to offer sanctions as well, of course, for if farmers fell short of what the committees required of them. That continued into the post-war period, and all political parties were agreed that that would be the case. So there's this um, continuity, really, from the way in which agriculture had been managed during the Second World War going into the peacetime period. And there are a lot of more positive things that Labour um, produced through that 1947 um, legislation as well. Things which encouraged farmers to really develop their professional engagement with their industry, uh, to improve their scientific understanding, to have access to ongoing education, to have access to resources to invest in their farms and to modernise their production. And one of the things that came out of that legislation um, in 1948 uh, was the formation of the National Agricultural Advisory Service, which encourage farmers really to think of themselves much more as businessmen, to focus on thinking about issues of farm management and how they could um, look at, uh, at best really making their farms economic units and uh, really managing their land, their resources, uh, investing in appropriate machinery and, and making all that add up into a thriving business. So all that had really important consequences uh, for the future. Do you think that the war changed the public image of farmers and also attitudes to the countryside in general? There was a lot of scope for the public image of farmers to improve by the time of the Second World War because farmers had rather a reputation for being selfish, individualistic, complaining a lot. That's one of the things that farmers were often associated with and they do some very public complaining during the late 1930s, even taking to the, the streets in protest, marching through London, complaining about the neglect of agriculture as a national industry. So there are lots of, of negative stereotypes associated with uh, farmers. Much is done to try and address that during the Second World War uh, by farmers' organisations trying to really seize the opportunity to get much better publicity for what farmers did, for the significance of their contribution to the society as a whole and the importance of domestic food production really being rammed home by the experience of the war. And, of course, the way in which what farmers were doing during the war was, was presented... Uh, could often have fairly heroic aspects to it. it. They were shown in wartime documentary films as battling the challenges of nature and uh, really waging this quasi-military campaign on the land. You have uh, inspiring uh, footage of, of tractors uh, tackling these huge gradients, ploughing land that had, had never been ploughed in human history and so on. So you've got this whole kind of romantic, heroic aspect to what farming represented during the Second World War. And out of all of that, of course, uh, farmers could emerge as these figures who were not only in a kind of traditional way embodiments of, of some aspects of national identity and the significance of the connection to the soil itself and, uh, and continuities of, um, of national uh, culture. So there's that aspect, but also this new element, which was really about farmers rising to this extraordinary challenge and sacrificing a lot of their own personal interests to uh, feeding uh, the nation and to uh, ensuring that they played their part in the war effort. So there is an element in which 
farming does, I think, emerge with uh, a much enhanced uh, reputation. In terms of how attitudes to the countryside more broadly uh, changed, um, I think there are significant developments that are prompted uh, by the war. For one thing, a lot of people spent their war in rural Britain. Um, a lot of urban people found themselves transported to these rural environments, uh, which were relatively unfamiliar to them. One of the most famous aspects of that is the evacuation, the evacuation of enormous numbers of school children, of course, also often mothers with young children, uh, school teachers as well, um, and that evacuation bringing these populations, not always for the whole of the war, sometimes for quite short periods, but, but putting them down in a rural environment and exposing them to very different ways of, of living and, of course, to an engagement with um, the uh, surrounding countryside, the surrounding landscape uh, itself. And there are other groups of the population too who find themselves spending their war in the countryside. Quite a lot of um, official departments, some institutions, uh, colleges, universities um, evacuate their staffs to uh, rural settings. Um, and of course you've got people specifically going to work in uh, agriculture, conscientious objectors working on the land, uh, and of course the recruitment of women for the land army. So you've got all these populations being exposed to a different way of life. Of course the countryside during the Second World War was being very heavily promoted as a productive space. Uh, this idea that really it had this terribly important role to play uh, within uh, food production within uh, the, the basic well-being of the country as a whole. And there's also a role for it within the national economy, that agriculture was going to contribute to uh, Britain's economic recovery after the war, and that it would help with the balance of payments problems, that it would fill up, it would free up uh, shipping space by providing uh, food produced domestically, uh, allowing Britain to really focus its, its trade uh, on other areas. So there's that heavy investment in the idea of the countryside as a productive space, but of course the countryside had, had so many other meanings as well, and one of the interesting developments in the immediate post-war period was about looking at the countryside as um, a landscape, as a setting for uh, leisure, as, as contributing overall amenity values to uh, the country, as, as contributing in some way to uh, a better quality of life for Britain as a whole. And you see various aspects in which, in that immediate post-war period, that's pursued through uh, policies on access, through policies to control uh, planning, development, uh, instituting the Green Belt, making, putting planning on a much firmer national footing through the Town and Country Planning legislation of 47. And of course, from 49, you've got the creation of national parks. So uh, you've got this other aspect of public attitudes to the countryside and what it meant to people, which really are sometimes in tension with that idea of the countryside as an intensely productive space, the way in which it had been promoted uh, during the Second World War, the countryside as having a practical value for food production. And then on the other hand, you've got this notion that the countryside is a space where people enjoy themselves, where they seek fresh air, where they can engage in all sorts of outdoor activities, and that it's somehow important to have that as part of of what makes Britain special, part of contributing to um, the nation as a whole. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? 
Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Ah, yes, the magnificent Trolley Sourbright Crawler, also known as Trollicus brightolus. The worm's captivating neon colour makes it an easy gummy prey. Trolley! It's a surprisingly sour, invitingly chewy, staggeringly snackable species unlike anything else found on this planet. Eat me! Delicious. Visit trolley.com to shop now. Trolley, eat me! That was Claire Griffiths of the University of Sheffield. Wartime Farm is available to watch on BBC iPlayer until the 1st of November 2012. And now we have a short advertisement break. Have you been thinking about a change from your current role? Or have you just graduated and want to begin a career in history? You may find that your keen interests and existing knowledge are exactly what employers are searching for. The new job section on HistoryExtra.com will provide you with a growing selection of available history-focused roles. Why not check it out and discover if your passion could become your career? Visit www.HistoryExtra.com forward slash jobs. You might just find what you're looking for. Now we have a short message about a BBC History magazine event. The magazine is running a First World War History Day on Sunday the 4th of November. It's being held at Bristol's M Shed Museum and will feature lectures from Gary Sheffield, Hugh Strawn, Peter Caddick adams William Philpott and Mark Connolly, along with an audience debate with all the speakers. Tickets are on sale now and you can find out more and book by going to www.historyextra.com forward slash events. That's historyextra.com forward slash events. The recently launched Oxford Scholarly Editions Online brings together digital versions of several thousand poems, plays and letters, predominantly from the 16th and 17th centuries. Among the writers included are the likes of William Shakespeare, Ben Jonson and Thomas Hobbes, and their texts are accompanied by expert notes. One of the editors of the editions is Professor John Morrill of the University of Cambridge, I spoke to John a couple of weeks back and began by asking him for a brief summary of what the scholarly editions are all about. Well, of course, we're in the middle of a major evolution in so far as all the texts that have been piling up in libraries are now becoming available to us online. And that not only makes them much more available to us and it makes them more available to more people, but it also means we can find and, and compare things much more rapidly. And one of the exciting things about it is that by putting, at the moment, hundreds and eventually thousands of volumes of primary source material 
um, that's say the, the, the stuff generated across the last 2,000 years or so, putting all that online is not only that it makes it very much easier to access, but also you can interrogate that vast amount of stuff and ask for, um, you know, I'll give you a very simple example, um, which classical authors does Shakespeare ever cite? And it can search through it all and tell you. Um, so it's what the general editor, uh, Michael Suarez, says is the Hubble telescope of the arts. You know, that it just allows us to really survey, you know, the literary heavens in the same way the Hubble telescope can, can do the, uh, the astronomical heavens. What type of documents are contained within these? Well, uh, at the m uh, happily for me, because I'm a 17th century historian, the starting point has been the great riches of the English Renaissance, uh, the great age of Shakespeare, and, and um, down to the second half of the 17th century. Uh, eventually it will contain all the great classical authors, all the great medieval writers, and then on through the 16th, 17th, 18th century up to the, well, anything that's out of copyright really. Um, it's, it's going to be for the humanities in general. Uh, I mean, the first major tranche are probably primarily works for literary scholars, though of course historians are interested in a great many literary texts. But it's also you know, there for theologians, for historians, for um, political scientists, for intellectual historians, really anyone who's interested in texts from the past. And, and how will these texts be presented? Is it just the text, or is there also analysis and things like that with it? Well, what they've done is to take 120 years' worth of Oxford scholarship, existing editions, and they've stripped them down to all their, their, their separate parts, the text, uh, the annotations, the um, introductory matter. Everything that's in the editions has been stripped down, and then it's been reassembled in a way that makes it extremely searchable uh, electronically. So there aren't, these aren't just digitised images of the um, uh, earlier uh, editions. It's all been put into HTM, HTML te uh, you know, formatting. So you can, you can scroll down through a text and then there'll be a little queue which shows you there are notes. You can look at the notes. Um, you can jump ahead. You can say, does he ever use this word? Again, I mean, for example, um, the other day um, I was thinking about Lancelot Andrews, the great Bishop of Winchester and Ely, who um, uh, was probably one who brought the, the, the phrase, the beauty of holiness, into English religious discourse. So I just asked, how many times does he use that phrase? And then I asked how many other people in the collection, quite a lot of preachers in the collection, how many of them use that phrase. And, you know, in the past that would have taken days to, uh, to, to uh, sort out. Now I could do it in 15 seconds. Sounds like it's going to be of tremendous value to people researching this period. It's going to be, yes, a real revolution in scholarship. Of course, it goes along with a lot of others. Um, for example, everything printed in the English language before 1700 has been available online um, in a thing called Early English Books Online for now for about 15 years. Very, very expensive. So only research libraries have got it. But that has existed. Uh, it's certainly not searchable in the way that this is searchable. But it ha does mean we've had that. All the state papers, that's to say all the documents collected by central government and by the Secretary of State and the, and the Council and so on, those have become online in recent years. So it's part of a general revolution in which uh, the, the, the core
core documents of our history, and I think specifically of our history, of British and Irish history, you know, are becoming um, readily accessible and so much more easy to interrogate than in the past. So it adds to, in a very significant way, this uh, revolution in the way in which uh, we can do scholarship. And in terms of your own research, how will it be helpful for you? Well, at the moment, one of my major projects is to produce um, a new five-volume edition of all the um, recorded words of Oliver Cromwell, all his letters and all his speeches. And, uh, well, the first thing to say is that that, in due course, will become part of Oxford School editions online, because it's for Oxford University Press, so it, obviously for me it's great to know it's going to go into this wonderful uh, environment. Uh, but as I do it, you know, I can, I can look to see whether Cromwell ever cites any of the authors who are in the edition. Um, I can find uh, very quickly um, references. To, I, can I can ask, for example, uh, very quickly, does, how often does Richard Baxter in his letters ever refer to Oliver Cromwell? Um, I can ask whether phrases that Cromwell uses, I mean, his, his deep preoccupation with divine providence, is divine providence something which he uses in the same way as, um, as many of his contemporary Puritan, uh, Puritans? And so I can check that very quickly by calling up their works and, and having a look. So it's making the editing process for one author much easier in the light of all the others. And do you think it's possible that, that real major discoveries might come out of this research by the fact you can do these kind of searches now? Oh, I think there's no doubt about that at all. There was somebody, actually, I was, I was with last week, a former student um, from my college who spent several years looking at the meaning of the word the, the supernatural as a noun form, the, the supernatural. What did it mean in Renaissance England? And he must have spent two years finding six examples which he then wrote, uh, wrote six, six chapters about. Mm. But, it, but he did half his PhD was identifying these, these occurrences. Now it could be done on the first day. So, you know, it is, it is revelatory. And it, it, until you do the, show the examples, I mean, I can't, I can't demonstrate um, what difference it would make any more than the, you know, a week after the Hubble telescope... Um, was operating, we knew what it would find. We just knew we had a machine here which was immensely powerful and would take us far deeper than we'd ever been able to go before. And what's your own role been on the project? There's an editorial advisory board um, of about 10 senior scholars, and I am the historian, as it turns out. I mean, most of them are uh, classicists or um, English literature scholars um, or philosophers. Uh, so I, I represent so with a discipline of history on the advisory board. And so we've had a very big part to play, I suppose more as a sounding board than anything else. But, for example, um, when they were uh, designing the... Um, the, the, the interfaces, they gave us 89 possible operations and said, which of these are the most important? Which of these are you keenest to see? So that, you know, when you, ha when you have a complicated operation like this, which ones can you access instantly and which ones the second or third layer? You know, and the result of the ten of us all in quite separately set filling in questionnaires on these 89 possible uh, ways of organising the material and retrieving the material, we got a very, very, very consistent pattern, and that helped them to design it in a way I think that, that most scholars will find is what they would want. 
and we asked you to pick out a few highlights from the editions. One of those was the sermons of Lancelot Andrews, who we already actually mentioned. What was especially remarkable about those? Well, first of all, um, Lancelot Andrews, who is uh, really the very end of Elizabeth's reign and, and throughout James's reign and into Charles' reign, is one of the great preachers. But he's also, in many ways, the godfather of the uh, conservative reaction in the English church, which we normally call Laudianism or Arminianism. And being able to sort of move rapidly through his sermons, looking for the key phrases which would define Arminianism, in order to see, you know, really to get a much sharper, clearer uh, notion of the relationship between the prehistory and then the actual history of this of this uh, dramatic movement that played such a large part in causing the Civil War. So within, you know, two or three hours of working on it, I'd already, you know, developed ideas which I hadn't been able to firm up in, in years of previous thinking about it. Um, and, you know, the, the, the edition is, I mean, immaculate, a fairly recent edition. And again, I found navigating around the, the marginal notes and jumping from, you know, from one note saying, well, does this ever come up in another note? Uh, you know, was immensely helpful. And I also was doing some comparisons, uh, able to get a phrase and think, well, one of that appears in John Donne's uh, sermons, because John Donne's another author, you know, in the edition. Uh, how, what is, is this specifically um, Lancelot Andrews? Is he the only person who's using this kind of language, or is it, in fact, you know, reasonably common? So being able to make those sorts of comparisons very quickly um, was, was marvellous. And then we also have some works by the 17th century English philosopher Thomas Hobbes. Yes. What can you tell us about those? Well, at the moment, uh, only a few of his uh, works um, have been put into the edition. But I did, I, I wanted to look at his letters. I wanted to see, and one of the things that's interesting is you can actually, by a simple filter, you can say, does the following... Uh, phrase of the following person get mentioned in the, in the letters he writes or in the letters he receives and you can separate that out and uh, which is you know simplifies your task but i was very interested to look at wh what ha whether in hobbes you get much reflection on the rise of cromwell and on his uh, standing in the 1650s so i was able very quickly to put in some keywords not only cromwell himself but lord protector and things i mean lord protector wouldn't normally be something that would be indexed um, but it would be something I'd want to know, or Lord General, for example. So to be able very quickly to interrogate Hobbes's outgoing and incoming letters to see at what point he shows a deep consciousness of Cromwell and how he perceives Cromwell's rise to power, you know, was one very important um, aspect of it. And the same with Behemoth, which is his sort of narrative history of, of the Civil War and Interregnum and simply to see what he had to say about a number of concepts that I was interested in, uh, particularly um, the question of whether uh, the protectorate was ever likely to become um, a monarchy. Um, it was just so much quicker to move around than it had ever been before. And so have you changed your opinion now about Hobbes on Cromwell? Yes, I think I've probably um, realised that that he that he had a much uh, closer uh, engagement, and that it may well have influenced his thinking in the Restoration more than I previously previously realised. And the the last selection you made is the poems of Robert Southwell, who's a Jesuit priest who was martyred um, just before the end of the 16th century. 
Why do these poems interest you? <laughs> well, um, this, I was rather, this is rather rueful, actually. The last book I published was, was a large anthology of Catholic spiritual writing um, from 1484, let's say, from the the invention of printing down to 1999 and it was co-edited with two others but I was solely responsible for the period 1484 to 1700 and the point I was we're trying to make in this book is that within the universal Catholic Church there is a very distinctive English Catholic tradition which comes not least from the period of um, what um, one of the Catholic hymns calls Dungeon, Fire and Sword, the period of great persecution. So I'd, I'd read something like 16 million words of, of Catholic writing in order to get the 120,000 words that we published. But now I realise that many of my tasks would have been much simpler if I'd had access to Southerl and the way in which Southerl can be, you can then link Southerl to other, other writers um, before and after him and I just loved reading you know that again interrogating that edition I mean I could have used the Oxford edition I didn't I you know I was very austere and used the um, the original printings from the uh, 1590s 1600s but, it, but now I could go back and just ask some of the ask some of the questions I'd have liked to ask um, two or three years ago and get answers very quickly by interrogating you know what's all all the texts which are in this edition and their notes so it was a rather rueful exercise to see how my life could have been made easier if this had come two or three years ago do you think there might be quite a few rather angry historians who <laughs> realise they've spent years of their life doing something they didn't need to do? Well, frustrated historians, certainly. On the other hand, if they look forward rather than backwards, you know, seeing themselves with huge, you know, opportunities. I mean, the, the, you know, th we've, this is a kind of interestingly a parallel with the late 19th century. I mean, in the late 19th century, our forebears turned all the old manuscripts into, you know, printed editions. So we, that was the great age for making things available in print. And now we're going through this second stage, which is converting print into, in, I suppose, just in tr tremendously searchable um, electronic uh, matter. And I do think that Michael Suarez's term, the Hubble telescope for the arts, is, is, is very, very, you know, very, very apt. And I suppose it clearly will tell you a lot about the works of these individual people, but does it also tell you a bit more about the times they lived in and about how much these people learnt and shared from each other? Oh, absolutely. Yes, it does. I mean, obviously that's something that will become much stronger as we move from the uh, 664 works that are on at the moment to the, you know, uh, three or 4,000 works that will be, you know, in, a, in a three or four years' time. I mean, the te every, with each new tranche, the texture will become, you know, richer and, and more interesting. Uh, but, I mean, there will be plenty of stuff for social and cultural historians, you know, to work on. I mean, at the moment, all Pepys's letters are there, uh, but you don't have access yet to the Pepys diary. But, of course, once Pepys diary is available in, in this format, you know, there'll be a huge amount you can discover about what everyday life in London and material culture and so on. And there will be plenty of other people, you know, who will be there who will tell you a lot about material culture. I mean, if you read the Ben Johnson edition, you know, you'll get a lot about um, Ben Johnson's engagement with... Um, with the material side of everyday life in, in Jacobean London. In the future, what further additions would you most like to see added to this project? In a sense, the point is that being one of the editorial board, that's already you know, largely in my, under my control. But um, 
obviously the, the Oxford in recent years has been rethinking who are the people who are of contemporary interest to us who are of interest to us who haven't been edited in the past and let's add them to the roster because they've done a pretty good job with, with almost all the canonical authors but there are a lot of uh, I mean I'd love to see the um, the Putney debates for example or the you know the, the the debates in which uh, um, the rank and file of the army are debating the fundamental issues of, of democracy and accountability of government. I mean, things like that which aren't currently on the list, but uh, I'd love to see, you know, uh, th those documents that, or the kind of documents that we find in the writings of uh, Keith Wrights and I mean, the, a, lot, a lot of court records. It'd be great to get the authentic voice of, of ordinary people alongside the works of the of the great authors in order to in order to provide context for one another. And just finally, if someone wants to have a look at these editions, how can they get hold of them? Well, at the moment, of course, uh, Oxford University Press has to uh, recover its investment, and so they are available through um, major. Um, libraries. The pricing is not as inhibitory as it um, was for the early English books online which I mentioned earlier. Um, I can't give you figures. I, firstly, I don't know them and secondly there, there, there are, you know, what you do is you, 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 know, you, you buy, for example, the right for X number of people to access them or Y number of people to access them. So you, there's all kinds of packages. But it, they should be affordable by county libraries, by good school libraries, uh, by um, certainly all higher education um, institutions. I would have hoped that a lot of uh, that public libraries, even in these straightened times, would see this as being a really major resource for their readers and in the same way that the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography for example um, what eight years ago was it the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography which is the lives of 60,000 prominent English women and men the way that became taken up by local libraries all over the country let's hope that this is the same so that we so that you know it democratizes knowledge. That was Professor John Morrill of the University of Cambridge. Find out more at oxfordscholarlyeditions.com And that's about all for this episode. I hope you've enjoyed the programme. We'll be back next week when we'll be talking about War and Peace Through History with Stephen Pinker. Do join us for that. And in the meantime, do have a look at our website, historyextra.com, where you'll find all manner of great content. And you can, of course, keep in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook as well. The History Extra weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by Dave Gibson.